Welcome to Comically Pedantic, where we take a detailed look at the complicated concepts, characters, and history of comic book culture. I'm your host, Derek L. Chase, and joining me again on this episode is the wonderful Delisa O'Brien. Hello. Welcome back. Thank you so much for sticking around for part two of this. Yes, I want to I wanna see how this progresses with the blackface. <laughs> uh, if you haven't listened to part one of this, uh, I highly recommend doing that. It has a lot of background information that leads into this. Uh, but regardless, I think we should just move forward a little bit. In 1987, Mike Barron helped launch the Punisher ongoing series by taking the reins as writer and working under editor Carl Potts. This would be the sole series featuring Frank on his never-ending war on crime for about a year when editor Carl Potts began writing the second ongoing series called The Punisher War Journal. See, The Punisher was incredibly popular at the time and Marvel decided it was worth the risk to give the character two titles and hoped it would be financially successful. It turns out that they were correct. It was so popular that Marvel sent the creators on a promotional tour to meet and greet fans, which is an expense you rarely see even considered worth setting up unless it is for your top sellers. By issue 25, however, Carl Potts was handling his duties as executive editor at Marvel's Epic imprint and a good chunk of the mainstream superhero books, so Mike Barron stepped in as the new writer, which meant that he was now handling writing duties on both of the Punisher's ongoing series. This leads to one of my favorite ridiculous finds while doing research for this particular episode. In 1991, Mike Barron wrote the Punisher War Journal number 37 titled Controversy, and it features a conservative radio host styled after Rush Limbaugh. It is never made explicit during the comic or in any interview I've found, but the prevailing consensus is that this character is definitely a stand-in for Rush. And if you don't know who that is, I took the liberty of gathering a small list of things he is known for. Do you know who Rush Limbaugh is, Delisa? I do, unfortunately. <laughs> well, you get to listen to a, a whole big list of things and not definitely not an exhaustive list. A very small list of things that he is known for. <laughs> In 2006, he claimed Michael J. Fox was either exaggerating or faking the symptoms of Parkinson's when Mr. J. Fox appeared in commercials for politicians supporting stem cell research. When he was called out on how offensive and wrong this is, he decided to pivot to arguing that Michael J. Fox was allowing Democrats to exploit his illness. In 2010, he blamed the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico on environmentalists, claiming that they blew up the oil rig in an attempt to stop offshore drilling. In 2011, he imitated the Chinese president by saying Ching Chao Gong Dong Kong Go Song for almost five minutes. That sounds so familiar. Oh my god. In 2012, while discussing Sandra Fluke's testimony on the cost of contraceptives and how personal friends have stopped using the pill due to this, he said, what does it say about the college co-ed Sandra Fluke, who goes before a congressional committee and essentially says that she must be paid to have sex? What does that make her? It makes her a slut, right? It makes her a prostitute. She wants to be paid to have sex. She's having so much sex, she can't afford the contraception. She wants you and me and the taxpayers to pay her to have sex. What does that make us? We're the pimps. Then went on to claim that if one receives taxpayer-paid birth control, their acts should be posted online for everyone to see, and opined on air that anyone on birth control is a slut, even the ones taking those hormones to control any number of medical conditions, such as acne or aggravated menstrual pain. So clearly one for nuance. Super slutty over here. (laughs) (laughs) In 2013, he claimed the Boston Marathon bombing proved that white people are horribly oppressed while dark-skinned people are not, 
mainly because he believed a white suspect would have been more readily identified and his background information revealed, although he cites absolutely no evidence for this claim. He has spent most of his years calling for harsh penalties for drug users before having to admit his own addiction to OxyContin. This all came to light after his name appeared in an investigation of black market sales of drugs. In 2014, he claimed Robin Williams' suicide was a result of being a political leftist and how this changed his worldview. Basically saying that because he was a leftist, it made him depressed and he killed himself. Nice. Real class. He's a super nice guy is what I'm really trying to get across. And all of this and his long history of racist and homophobic jokes, of course, made him a darling to some and led him to receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Donald Trump. Who else would have given it to him? I mean, let's be honest. That's true. But all of this is about the person, so let's change our focus and look at the comic. The character, Percy Baxter, is a self-described enemy of leftist pinko commies, animal rights nuts, pro-abortion people, members of the so-called gay community, and the peace crowd all of whom are possibly out to kill him. I also like that he said so-called gay community because <laughs> either he's saying that, they, the, that gays don't have a community or they're not really gay. I don't know which. And that's where the Punisher comes in. See, Frank is tasked with protecting Percy from threats that have recently been made on his life. Now, I've read some comments online uh, claiming that this firmly establishes Mike Barron's political leanings, uh, meaning basically they're saying that he is uh, right-wing and in line with uh, someone like Rush. Yeah. But I'm not quite sure about that. See, it's clear by the way that the character is presented that he isn't a good guy. Throughout this issue, he frequently annoys the only woman we see in his employ by referring to her as girl or commenting on her looks. His stances are shown as wildly unpopular, and he is very clearly presented as a jackass. On the flip side of this, the would-be assassins are caricatured as stereotypes of hippie vegetarians willing to kill in order to stop Percy from making another broadcast. This is one of those instances instances where I uh, wondered if I should really bring up this particular issue, uh, since it doesn't have much of a direct relationship to the one we are about to talk about. But I found it notable for being written by Baron around the same time. It's also very laughable in its climax. (laughs) When the Punisher finally hunts down the killers who have been after Percy, he makes a wonderful declaration. Quote, The proper response to speech you find offensive is more free speech. I've got enough free speech for everyone. And then he mows them all down in a hail of bullets. Wow. I legitimately laughed out loud when I read that part. (laughs) I have no I have no doubt that this was supposed to be considered a badass line from a free speech advocate. But instead, it comes off as an extremely lame attempt at a one-liner in a horrible action movie. And I don't think that's necessarily bad. I love horrible action movies. I don't most good action movies, other than like Die Hard, I don't really even care that much about. But I love the bad ones. You would. Honestly, the comic seems to be trying to make a point about uh, there being good and bad on both sides of the political aisle. But it's incredibly muddled and does more to prop up the clear asshole of Percy Baxter or Baxter, whatever the fuck his name is. Even the Punisher (laughs) listens to his show and says that he makes some good points. It's extremely weird. But this comic has a cover date of December 1991, which places it directly behind the start of our big storyline, which has a cover date of January 1992. Now, what we are covering comes at the heels of a big story called The Final Days, which saw the Punisher imprisoned with several inmates that clearly have an axe to grind. 
Jigsaw, one of the few villains who somehow continues to survive encounters with the Punisher, although past meetings have left him with horrible facial scars, sends his gang after Frank. And during the fight, Punisher's face is cut and scarred very similar to, similarly to Jigsaw's own, which actually allows for him to sneak out, unnoticed by pretending to be a different injured prisoner. Where we pick up in this story, Frank is currently on the run with a face that is heavily scarred and hunted by gangs that follow both Jigsaw and the Kingpin. And that brings us to Punisher number 59, written by Mike Barron, penciled by Hugh Haynes, inked by Jimmy Palmiotti, lettered by Ken Lopez, and colored by Marie Javins. It starts with the Punisher having found a doctor that will fix his face. The catch is that she is both a sex worker and a drug addict. The comic itself uses different words to describe the doctor than what I'm using here, but I feel that it's mostly a product of its time and it's not really meant to be uh, offensive. Just like something that uh, at the time people would say these words. Uh, That doesn't mean that they're not offensive. I just don't think that the meaning behind them was to be offensive. Right. Uh, So they are both on the run and the Punisher brandishing truly massive guns and murders several of the people who are after them. And as they run, Dr. Brewer screams, they didn't tell me you were a head case. And Punisher replies, they didn't tell me you were a hooker on junk. (laughs) It's another line that just makes me laugh. Uh, The Punisher steals a car to get to the doctor's private lab, which is the infirmary at a chemical plant. When they arrive, he tells her that he wants her to change his face so he will no longer be recognized. She reluctantly agrees, and Frank, showing some interest in her as a person for seemingly the first time, asks how she wound up in the condition that she finds herself in. She answers by saying, I did my residency at St. Clair's in the South Bronx. That's where they send army surgeons for combat training. So essentially what she's saying is that she started taking uppers to finish her shift, But after uh, that, she was unable to relax, and a doctor recommended heroin to numb the pain for what she was seeing. The hospital found out, and she made a deal where she would lose her license, but escape jail. Once out of the medical field, she turned to sex work to survive and to pay for more heroin. And it's during uh, this talk that she mentions her previous work on tissue regeneration and melanin, setting up a small hint at what's about to come. Punisher then drifts to sleep and he begins to op- as she begins to operate and he dreams about his wife. While he's out, <clears throat> two drug addicts break into the makeshift operating room demanding that Dr. Brewer give them her morphine supply. And as one of them knocks her to the ground and implies that he's about to rape her, she grabs one of the Punisher's guns and yells, took an oath to save lives, didn't say nothing about lying down for meth freak punk trash. <laughs> this, this world that they live in is just constantly in danger and I kind of love it. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's crazy, but it's crazy in a way that like is very entertaining. Uh, after murdering the two intruders, the good doctor goes back to her operation, briefly getting tremors from withdrawal and contemplating getting high before dumping her bottle of opiates. And, and I think that's a good uh, moment here because it really sets up that she, she has decided that doing this thing is, is, is going to be a new uh, new life for her. And she wants to get rid of the addiction that she had that ruined her old life. She wants to start over. Yeah. Uh, once Frank wakes, he realizes it's been five days. Demanding to see what he now looks like, he removes his bandages to see that he is now black. And when I say he is now black, I don't mean that he suddenly has darker skin. His skin, hair, and lips have all changed, leaving only his blue eyes. Somehow, this melanin operation has changed not just his face, but his entire body. And obviously, this doesn't make him African-American, but it does make him look like he is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to post a picture um, on... Uh, I'm going I'm to try to figure out how I can do it on my website, but I'm also going to post it on our Instagram at PedanticCast. 
just so that you can see what it is that he looks like. Because if you've ever seen a picture of the Punisher and you see this person, there is there is no way to color him white and for it to look like him. They clearly changed him into a different person. It's like more than a tan. They're like, oh my God, I'm almost the same color as you because you got a tan. Like it's actual melanin. Yeah, and it's so it's 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 also not played as blackface in the way that like there is uh the the largely caricatured, very offensive and 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 very dark colors. You know, it it is he's supposed to look like a black guy. And it's still blackface. It's just a very different uh, kind. And I don't think that they were thinking of it as blackface at the time. I went into this uh, really thinking that there's no way this isn't racist. And I came out of it going, it is definitely racist, but I don't think they intended for it to be racist. And that brings us to Punisher number 60, with plot and script by Mike Barron, but with a scripting assist by Marcus McLaren. And this assist might seem a little odd, but we will get to it. I won't get into too much detail for right now, but I felt it was important to make a special note that Mike Barron didn't write this alone. As for the rest of the credits, we have Val Merrick on pencils, Al Williamson on inks, David Sharp as the letterer, and colored by Marie Javins. And I'm going to, again, apologize to anyone who I, I might have screwed up their name because I, I'm horrible with names in general, and I've never heard some of these spoken out loud. So I'm just guessing at how they're pronounced. So we start the comic with Frank completely not reacting at all to the fact that he has miraculously seemingly switched races. And I'm not joking in the slightest. There is a panel of him looking in the mirror with a slightly shocked look on his face, but the comic immediately moves on and he says absolutely nothing about the change. Instead, he decides that he has to leave the area since he is now wanted by the law and roaming gangs of New York. While on the road, he remembers that he has a safe stash of equipment in Chicago and decides that this is as good a place as any to spend some time recovering. So 19 exhaustive hours later, Frank finds himself on a highway just outside of his destination. But here's the thing. He hasn't been taking the drugs that Dr. Brewer gave him, and he literally just had surgery. So he starts to fall asleep at the wheel, causing his car to swerve. And unfortunately for him, at least four patrol cars spotted this and pulled him over, and which is probably the most realistic aspect of this story so far. <laughs> a seemingly black person swerves their car and four patrol cars spot him and pull him over. Yep. Uh, the officers begin questioning if he's on drugs and then they refer to him as boy several times before one hits him in the side with his baton and brings up a very thinly veiled racial slur. Frank fights back while thinking, sometimes my reflexes betray me. I had no patience for bigots back when I was white. Now that I'm black, I don't like it any better. And I want to point out that this is six pages into this comic, and this is the first time that he has even mentioned that he is now black or that he used to be white. There's a small recap at the beginning of the issue, but he never directly states what happened after the surgery. It's also important to note that while it is true that the Punisher never particularly enjoyed or endured bigotry, he's not actually black. He <laughs> looks black. And that might seem like a pedantic distinction to make. And I will first say that this is a show built on that idea. And I will also say growing up in a particular culture and with inherent society-wide racism working against you is different from suddenly finding yourself looking like that same group. And I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a thing that is uh, commented on enough. I remember when like the movie Shallow Hal came out and Gwyneth Paltrow put on like a fat suit and walked around. Uh, and she was like shocked at what it was like to be treated as a fat person. And 
Um, I know that there's not like a one-to-one comparison between like growing up in like uh, a racist uh, country and looking uh, the way that racists hate uh, and being someone who is fat. But there is a little bit of that sort of outsider mentality there. And she was shocked at how she was treated. And I'm like, but you're also not getting the treatment. You're getting one day. You're getting one very, very, very small aspect of it. And you're not taking on any of the other greater context to it. Exactly. You know? Uh, so while the Punisher has decided to fight back against these cops who are harassing him, he isn't doing a very good job. Frank is a man of many talents, but it's difficult to win when there are six armed men beating you and you're without your weapons. And that's where Luke Cage comes into play. He happened to be driving down the same highway and noticed that fight. Seeing rampant police brutality, he feels obliged to step in. I would also say that's also a good point to point out whenever someone's like, oh, don't resist arrest uh, and you won't get shot. Um, that's not true. Uh, there's the Brianna Taylor who was asleep, who got shot by the police. What did she, she was not resisting arrest. Yeah, you can be handcuffed face down on the ground and they accidentally shoot you. Like, it's not. <laughs> and it's, so, I mean, even this comic book, which is, I would argue, again, racist, even though it doesn't mean to be, still gets that part of it right. Uh, And I'm going to pause here to be um, a little pedantic and give an extremely brief overview of the Luke Cage character. As films like Shaft and Blackula were becoming popular, ushering in the era of blaxploitation movies, Marvel felt the opportunity to capitalize on this phenomenon by creating their very own blaxploitation character. In terms of superpowers, the creative team came up with one that is impossibly perfect from a symbolic stance. A black man who is bulletproof. And I, I think that was actually part of the marketing for the Luke Cage TV show. Yeah. Because I think it didn't like happen to premiere kind of around the first wave of like Black Lives Matter. I think so. It's been a while uh, since I've gone back to it. So I don't really remember the uh, the cultural context to that coming out. I remember really liking it. And it, like, was important enough that, like, Netflix went down from so many people trying to watch it. And in true American fashion, the character was created and written by all white men. Because of course he was. (laughs) And he fought against crime in Harlem because of course he did. None of this is to say that Luke Cage is a bad character. In fact, he's the very first African-American superhero to have his own title and is, generally speaking, a favorite character of mine to see pop up in various series. Most of what I said about Luke being written by all white men is the same for, say, the Black Panther, who is the first black superhero in mainstream American comics. And I would argue both have evolved past their short-sighted beginnings. The idea of a series or a character becoming more than the sum of its parts is a much wider topic that I'll have to address on another episode. But it has... uh, enough relevance that it's worth having this as a background. And as I said before, Luke Cage is a black superhero who generally protects Harlem. But in the early 90s, it was decided that he needed to be revamped a bit just to appeal to a larger audience. And this is where Marvel made a surprisingly smart decision, and one that isn't often made even today. They brought in writer Marcus McLaren and penciler Dwayne Turner to helm the new series, giving Cage a black creative team. They set the series in Chicago to give Luke a new beginning, and when you couple this with the fact that McLaren is the scripting assist that I mentioned earlier, you start to see that some of the decision-making process that went into the story was marketing. 
So how do you highlight the subject of race in your story? You pair the character struggling with the supposed race change with your preeminent African-American superhero. Due to this, you have to get the Punisher to Chicago, since that is where Cage is, so you come up with a flimsy excuse to get him halfway across the country and set up a meet-cute involving abusive police officers. Now, this, this is all conjecture on my part, but I can't imagine that I'm very far off. And, like, I mean, there's some context that I'll be giving to you later, but, like, it just doesn't make sense to pair these two uh, from a marketing standpoint, unless it is to prop them both up. Yeah. Um, I mean, the only other uh, reason to do it is an, an extremely racist decision, but I don't think that was uh, the case either. Uh, but let's get back to the story. So Luke Cage steps in to help the Punisher fight off the police, while, think, uh, while Frank throws one literally off the ramp to what is clearly his death, and they steal a police car to get away. So sometime later, they wind up in Luke's neighborhood and stumble upon some kids dealing crack. Luke slaps the kid while saying, I told you not to deal that stuff. You bring him down the hood. Don't make me bring you down instead. These one-liners are... Uh, oh, Luke, uh, especially early on, was known for his one-liners. Like, Sweet Christmas is a thing that comes up a lot. And I did not grow up uh, a young black person in America, so... <laughs> I don't know how accurate any of the slang is. Um, I would be inclined to believe that uh, Marcus McLaurin um, gets it right, but he was also an adult writing this. So I, he might be guessing at what some of the slang is. I, I don't know. Yo, yo, uh, yo. It's, <laughs> Just like early 90s. Uh, I intentionally didn't include a lot of the slang that's in the book because I don't feel comfortable just sitting here reading it because... I have a feeling it's going to sound really stupid. <laughs> Do that off, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> and it's at this point that Cage is approached by a woman from the neighborhood who lets them know that the dealers are getting more brazen in their attempts to sell. While Luke explains that the situation is getting bad to Frank, the Punisher finally succumbs to his weariness and collapses, leaving Luke to have to carry him back to his apartment. When he wakes, Cage questions him for his name, which he gives us Frank Rook, because he is a man with many guns, but little imagination. It's at this point that the Punisher gives Luke a proposition. He knows where the stashed money and guns are from when a previous drug boss was taken down, and he offers the money to Cage in exchange for helping the Punisher get to the guns. Luke reluctantly agrees, but under the condition that nobody dies, which will be brought up several times throughout the story because Frank is clearly unable to keep his part of the bargain. When they reach the hotel where the stash is hidden, they beat up the guys who were guarding the entrance, all while the Punisher comments on how amazed he is that this once beautiful area is in such a disarray. Luke is unfazed, stating, yeah, poverty and crack will do that. While they make their way through the building, Frank asks about the gang guarding it. Luke answers, El Rubens rule the south side, man. Sent the murder rate up 150% in the past six months, matching the crack sales while they take our people and themselves down. During this, they come across a man with a machete about to murder someone while making unintelligible sounds. I think the implication is that he's high on crack, but he's like a zombie uh, more than anything else. Uh, Luke breaks the machete, knocks the guy out, and then moves to break down the wall to, uh, to the room where the safe is and where everything is that they're looking for. They find the safe only to realize that the money is already gone, but the guns and armor were in a different untouched safe. Cage tells Frank he likes the way he handled himself and tells him that he wants his help clearing out the dealers in the neighborhood. 
Punisher loads up on armor and guns, carefully taping over the skull symbol on his chest and agrees to help. Now that brings us to the start of issue 61, with basically the same credits as before, except this time, Mike Barron is listed as providing only the plot, and Mark McLaren is, is listed as the scripter. Now, what this means essentially is that Mike came up with uh, what happens in the story and handed that all off to McLaren to figure out the specific wording, uh, and honestly, probably even the pacing, of what people say and how it's said. Okay. The issue starts with Frank at the entrance to the L. Rubens new building, asking to buy some crack. I should point out that between issues, the name of the gang changed from the L. Rubens to the L. Rookens. And I can't really figure out if that was a lettering mistake uh, or if they just decided that this is like what it is. It was confusing enough that I had to go back and check. In any case, when walking up to the dealers and saying, got that crack doesn't go his way. Punisher fights his way through the door and eventually gets taken down, but notice that someone's serious about buying. They take him to the head of the organization, who happens to be a white man in a business suit, Mr. Rudy, who greets him with, Welcome, my brother. What can we do you for? And I will, I am also, I'm going to point out that when they write brother in uh, the comic, the, the bro part of it is um, bold and separated from the, the their part of brother. So I don't know how he's supposed to be pronouncing it. I just know it's supposed to be awkward as shit. Brother. <laughs> Frank wastes no time in telling Mr. Rudy that he wants in on the business, even claiming he has $2,000 in cash to get invested. When they ask to see the money, he claims that the gang member who was frisking him earlier must have taken it, prompting the guard to break the gang member's arm. Mr. Rudy offers the Punisher a hit off his crack pipe before getting interrupted by Cage, tossing a smoke bomb into the building from the, across the street. Frank grabs the nearest gang member since he has already broken, uh, broken an arm and uses him as a human shield before jumping out of the building and landing on a car below. Later, as the two go over the intel that Frank collected, Luke berates the Punisher over his willingness to murder, stating, I am hired to clean this building, but I ain't washing it in blood. No more brothers dying for that stuff. And Frank responds, Brother, why don't you wake up, Cage? This ain't about race. Which brings us to probably the best quote in the entire run from Cage's response. FBI shows most inner-city crimes committed by black-on-blacks. Movies and TV still hype brothers as the street thugs, the hood, the man to fear. You know that look in the eyes of strangers, that feeling. It ain't about race, no. It's about image and knowing who you are when no one else does. So Luke continues as he says that he is proof that there is a way out and nobody has to die. But this is where I let a bit of my frustration take over when reading the series because this is a bad idea for a story. But the parts with Luke Cage are very close to being about something a bit more than the hook of a white man learning what it is to be black. Pointing out statistics, how those are biased, and calling out the media's representation of black people in America is what this story should be about. <laughs> it's a particularly interesting idea using a character who was born out of black exploitation. The problem is that the story isn't that interested in going much further into it than this one conversation and a few background elements tied into how crack ruins lives and neighborhoods. They were so close. <laughs> I'm interested in this story, but I'm not interested in seeing the Punisher tell this story. While this stands as a good idea for a Luke Cage comic to explore, everything built around the plot is enough to make me not even want to check out Cage's own series. These few issues are extremely dull, even though they are full of action and minor commentary on real-world issues. 
And I will also point out, um, it took me forever to write this particular script. And part of it is because I did not want to read the rest of this series. I was so bored by it. Um, and I also like there is a Luke Cage series that came out around the same time that I mentioned earlier. And I, I have issues of that book and I liked the issues of that book. I just didn't care for this one. I, I forgot I had those issues until I was writing about this and I went through uh, a lot of my back issues and I found Luke Cage number one. <laughs> Do you think that they were just an ill equipped to tackle the subject matter where it's just kind of like, all right. Yeah, I'm going to try to make a point, which is like how, you know, someone might feel on a very surface, unexamined level. I think that is part of it. And there is some more that we will get into a little bit later about um, why I think this was particularly dull. So I don't want I don't want to say too much about it yet, but I do think that part of it is they just were not uh, ready to tell this story. There, There was not anything good coming out of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But in any case, this is the story that we have. After their disagreement, Cage and Frank interrupt a fight between some gang members and the woman who hired Luke to get rid of the dealers in the building. It's here that we learn a bit more about the overall operation. The residents are given the chance to help with the the drug scene or they are told that they have to leave. One of the gang members gets away and the Punisher chases after him, bringing him back to Cage to be lectured on how there's always a better way to the irritation of Frank. The Punisher holds firm to his belief that talking to criminals changes nothing. He hands one of the women a gun while Cage isn't looking and tells her to hold on to it just in case. So clearly he has a different idea of how this needs to be handled. Uh, Later, our two heroes discuss their plan. Luke is going to run in and start a fight since he is the one who is actually bulletproof. And Frank will come in after in Kevlar and brandishing an assault rifle in order to help the residents escape. The scene ends with Cage telling Frank, again, that he isn't supposed to kill anyone. And at 2 a.m., the assault starts. The drug dealers recognize Luke and figure out that if he was hired, then it must have been the tenants who left the building already so they send their goons out to murder them. Meanwhile, the Punisher runs into one of the gang members but recognizes that he is a kid. Showing a bit of growth and self-doubt, rather than actually shoot the kid, he tells him to just get out of the building. This thought process is short-lived, however, since while he is trying to usher the tenants out of the fire escape, Gang members burst in and the Punisher decides to shoot them all while thinking, Cage keeps wanting to keep those goons alive, some misplaced sense of salvation. But they choose their lives, just as I choose to end them. (laughs) What? Back in the upper floors, Luke uh, makes his way to Mr. Rudy, who is holding a gun to a hostage's head. One of the criminals starts beating Cage with a wrench, while Rudy tells him that if he fights back, the girl dies. He's saved, though, when Frank bursts through the window and shoots all of the gang members. He has magic bullets. He just is so good at this. Luke tells the Punisher that this has made things a little harder because they have to explain to the police why they shot so many people, and that means Frank can't leave town just yet. He does stop to question if Frank feels okay, though, commenting that he's starting to look a little pale. (laughs) Punisher starts to tell Luke that there is something he needs to know, but is interrupted by one of the surviving tenants trying to soothe her daughter. Other than a one-page setup in the next issue, which we will discuss shortly, this brings us to the end of 61 and to the beginning of the final installment in the story, the absolutely horrendously titled The Punisher, number 62, Fade to White, with the exact same credits as the previous issue. Yikes. It begins with the representative of the kingpin of crime named George discussing with the Chicago crime boss his belief that the Punisher is now alive and is a black man. And they don't laugh at him for this. 
which I guess makes sense. It is the Marvel Universe. But how he came to this conclusion isn't really fully explained during the meeting. There is more evidence presented later, but for now, he just says that he was watching the safe houses that Frank had throughout Chicago, and he recognizes him uh, when he came to get his guns. And that's a bit odd, considering that I don't think my first thought would be, hey, that black guy looks a lot like a white guy that I know, so they must be the same person. He's got blue eyes, you know? (laughs) But this is the Marvel Universe, so I guess much weirder transformations have happened, so I guess it can't be too out of left field. He goes further in saying he wants some cash to help take down the Punisher, and he's granted these resources in exchange for proving that Frank Rook is really Frank Castle, and for the death of the Punisher and Luke Cage. We then cut to our two heroes beating up some criminals, with Frank looking more pale than he has recently. It's been about two weeks since they started working together, and it seems that the Punisher is starting to question whether or not he needs to continue being the Punisher. Later, they run into a woman, the, uh, the specific woman that Frank gave the gun to earlier, and she hands it back, telling him that he d- she has no use for it, not in her house with her kid anyway. And all of this is watched from afar by George and a mysterious woman in shadow who identifies Frank as the Punisher. And a couple more days pass, and Frank decides that he can't stay in Chicago since he is turning back into being white. And as he leaves, he is taken hostage and ushered into the back of a moving van. Luke runs after him, but they shoot a bazooka at him and knock him out. When Frank is finally delivered to where they've taken him, George tries to beat a confection of of his identity out of him. When he refuses to admit it, they bring out the mysterious woman from before, revealing her to be Dr. Melinda Brewer, the woman who fixed his face and made him appear black. I know, right? When they reveal that they've kept her high to bring her along and that they will hurt her if she doesn't tell the truth, he relents and announces that he is, in fact, the Punisher. It's this moment that proves to Frank that he can never leave his war on crime. Pulling a gun somehow hidden during this search earlier, I don't know where he kept it, he fires with his arms literally tied behind his back and still manages to shoot George in the head. As the shootout begins, Luke Cage breaks through the building to join the fight. While the Punisher fights one of his captors, it's made clear that the treatment was, uh, has worn off and he is back to having white skin. And as he stabs the man in the chest, his victim tears at his shirt, revealing the Punisher costume just underneath. When the fighting is all over, Luke comments on the change by saying, So you're the Punisher. Nice disguise till you lost your tan. And Frank brushes this off by telling Luke that he needs to stay on the right side of the law because if he doesn't, he'll come after him. The comic ends as he leaves the building, narrating to himself, I was the Punisher. Long as there's crime preying on his innocence in this swill of corruption, I will be. There will always be a need for a Punisher. God help us all. And with that, the the Punisher turns black storyline comes to an end, and by the next issue, the status quo is back to normal and a new creative team takes over the book. And I think there's a very clear intention to have this be about several things. But one of the most confusing is whether or not Frank exists uh, as the Punisher and whether or not he can leave that behind. Several times he gives up the name, he tries to work like Cage, and is even rebuked by the woman who he gave a gun to for protection. The story goes back and forth on this, but his actions throughout give the answer as a resounding no. But this leaves a few questions left. Namely, why was this story told? Yeah. (laughs) The first part of the answer comes from Mike Barron himself, and as Brian Cronin wrote in Comic Book Legends Revealed, 
The great Sims wrote about this storyline at his blog nearly a decade ago, and Mike Barron actually showed up in the comments to note, dudes, that storyline was forced on me by editor Don Daly. I was only following orders. Yes, I look back at those stories now and I cringe. So that, I think, actually says a lot more about uh, why this was boring. He didn't want to write it. And I'm willing to bet uh, Marcus McLaurin, I don't know for a fact, I'm willing to bet the other writer on the series also didn't want to write it. Uh, It seems like it was editorially mandated. And this is why you need people of color on staff to just really be like, nah, this is a bad, this is a bad idea. (laughs) Like it's not going to serve anybody. Yeah, I I completely agree with you. I mean, I think that was... um, that that has been and continues to be an issue in uh, comic books. So that takes care of uh, one of the writers. But uh, as we discussed earlier, there was a scripter involved in this series as well. And in Marvel Vision number 15, Barry Dutter wrote, The story was inspired by the novel Black Like Me, in which a white reporter went undercover disguised as a black man to witness the black experience firsthand. Frank Castle's own personal black experience was chronicled by Caucasian writer Mike Barron. But black writer and then Marvel staffer Mark McLaren was brought in to handle all of the African-American dialogue. So now we have two reasons to bring McLaren into the book. For one, uh, he was handling the Cage revamp series. And for another, he was a black man who knew how to write black people and a story about the Punisher somehow being black. And that's kind of good. I mean, I think that at least they had the idea to like bring on someone black to write about what it's like being black, but they could have just had, I don't know, him write this in his Luke Cage story. True, very true. But that's still only part of the story. The rest of what I'm about to say will be conjecture. As I mentioned before, Cage's new series was helmed by McLaurin, and uh, I didn't mention that it debuted in the April of 1992. Around the same time that this Punisher story was ending, which gives a lot of evidence to this being used as a marketing ploy for the soon-to-be-launched series. It's not unheard of in the comic book industry to do such things, but the weird bit of history here is about how focused Marvel was on presenting the Black experience. We already know that Black Like Me was a big inspiration, but I have my own theories on what could have been going through the air in editorial at the time. My thoughts are the biggest cultural touchpoint of the early 90s had to be the two very specific things of the beating of Rodney King, which led to the LA riots, and the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1991. So I'll start with touching on what I consider to be the least likely to have a huge impact on Marvel's decision-making. Following two long years of debate, Congress finally passed the Civil Rights Act of 1991 to prohibit discrimination for job applicants or workers based on their race, religion, or gender. This act provided an opportunity to collect emotional distress damages, trial by jury for discrimination cases, and provided a federal framework for what constituted employment discrimination. Now, I'm willing to admit this probably wasn't on the mind of everyone writing comics at the time, but it would be hard to miss how this brought out the conversation on what it was like to be someone who wasn't a straight white man living in the United States. It very easily could have led to more people uh, starting to think about what it was like for others to have to live in a society that wasn't really looking out for them. So while I don't really think this had a major role in in the decision, I'm more than willing to think it played a dual role with the news of Rodney King's beating, which I'm actually, I I talked to someone recently and I mentioned Rodney King's beating and uh, 
they were vaguely aware of it, but really knew almost nothing about it. So I'm going to go into a little bit of history here. For those that don't know the story of Rodney King, I'm going to quote from a wonderful article on NPR titled, When L.A. Erupted in Anger, A Look Back at the Rodney King Riots by Anjali Sastry and Karen Grigsby Bates. I'm going, I have to apologize again. I am certain I got at least one of those names wrong. Uh, The whole thing started in March of 1991, which isn't that much earlier than when Mike Barron would have started writing his last story for The Punisher. Rodney King was already on parole for a previous arrest on robbery charges and had been out with friends drinking er earlier in the night. Still under the influence, Rodney caught the attention of a few officers, and when they tried to get him to pull over, he decided to try to outrun them instead. I mean, and this, this makes some sense, especially if you, you know what it's like to be pulled over by the police when uh, you are not white. I think it is very likely that he decided not to pull over for the police officers because he was looking out for his own safety. Oh, absolutely. I know there are some documentaries that like LA at that time was not a good place to live. And it wasn't necessarily because of like gangs. It was just a lot of cop corruption and like literal stories of like they would plant drugs on you. So I feel like there was a general like hostility between like the people of like certain neighborhoods in LA and like the police. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I obviously I was like two when this happened, so I I didn't know what was going on at the time, but like I do have a good eye and ear for history. So I can see some people definitely not believing that, but they uh, just don't understand how America works. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, but the police came out in 1988. So and Cop Killer <laughs> came out not that long after that. So it's like, and both of, they were both about the same damn thing. <laughs> like just to get a sense of why someone was run. When police finally uh, stopped him, uh, sorry, I'm I'm quoting from NPR. When police finally stopped him, King was ordered out of the car. Los Angeles Police Department officers then kicked him repeatedly and beat him with batons for a reported 15 minutes. The video showed that more than a half a dozen cops stood by watching and commenting on the beating. King's injuries resulted in skull fractures, broken bones, and teeth, and permanent brain damage. Ultimately, four officers were charged with excessive use of force a year later on April 29th, 1992. So after this story came out, but still, uh, this was all in the news at the time. A jury consisting of 12 residents from the distant suburbs of Ventura County, nine white, one Latino, one biracial, and one Asian found the four officers not guilty. Now, there's a lot to take in from just these couple of paragraphs, but it should be noted that April of 1992, when the officers were found not guilty, is right around the time uh, that this story was ending. And that means that Rodney King's story and the story of the abusive officers was in the news for the entire time the book was being worked on. It's hard to emphasize how important of an event this was in America at the time. Just a few hours after the verdict came in, citizens began writing in L.A., And few things outside of the O.J. Simpson trial have polarized this country more. And I would probably say the murder of George Floyd would be the next thing to bring up in this. But I kind of wrote that before this happened. And it's sad that I have to amend this and talk about something newer. But there you go. Since then, more Black people 
have been beaten and or killed. The cynic in me sees that and recognizes that it's not a big leap to having an entire comic book storyline upended and forcing a writer to pin a dubious take on the difficulties of being Black in America. This is, again, only conjecture on my part, and it would be really disingenuous for me to not mention that this is the type of thinking more problematic elements in the comic book fandom point to when crying that comics have become too political. Some might look at my theory and claim hypocrisy for me to say that this story is bad and my support for a black Captain America or a gay Iceman stands. To those people, I offer a rebuttal. Comics have always been political. From Captain America punching Hitler to Green Lantern's lessons in racism. From Miss Marvel's feminist beginnings to the X-Men's very existence. Comics have always had a story to tell and a message to convey. The difference here is in the way that the stories are told. Having a white character essentially put on blackface is a poor way to convey the problems of what it is like to be black or the privilege one has in being white. I have no patience for any arguments that use political motivation as disqualifying for a story. But now that we've covered this, I'm left wondering what could have been done differently. And there is the obvious of having this just be a Luke Cage storyline, which I think I've mentioned multiple times throughout this episode. Or even having a second Punisher who is actually black and the ways that he would have to operate differently from the original. But the truth is that the story they produced wasn't a particularly thrilling one. The reason it is remembered at all is for the pure insanity of this hook. It's not a good idea, nor was it ever a good idea. It's best to leave this in the past and remember it only as an oddity along the same lines as Lois Lane becoming black for a day. Is there anything that you uh, want to add about this before I move on to my conclusion? No, I think you make a good point in that I feel like with a lot of superheroes or, you know, real life vigilantes, usually there is a copycat. So like it would have been interesting to see what a black copycat would have looked like not a the actual Punisher having a melanin transplant that fades <laughs> away, but okay. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it would have been interesting for him to like encounter, you know, some other Punisher of any other race and <laughs> like seeing how that played out with him and like, you know, his own logic basically against him. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like maybe they were just tiptoeing around it or they had to like reel it back. Didn't want it to be too like messagey. Or I guess another theory, because I'm rambling, sorry, um, is that if if it was a time where like the Rodney King stuff was like in the news, maybe they didn't want to get too political. Like people turn to comics. And, you know, on TV shows and stuff is like a way to like escape. So maybe it was just like a moment of like, hey, I don't want this to get to that point. Not excusing blackface at all, but I'm just saying like logic behind why they didn't go further at that moment. Uh, I mean, I, I can see that. And I I would say that you're probably right. Um, there is There is something to be said uh, about media being entertainment and an escape. Um, I definitely think that it can be both though. Um, and I think that they came really close to coming up with something that could have been both. 
Yes. Um, and they really fucked it up. Uh, this is, they had a, they had a chance to actually say something in a story where you deal with race, um, and what it's like in America. And they came close to doing it, but they did it in a way where no one wants to talk about this story without it, the people that want to talk about it, want to talk about it for how shitty it is and how weird, how much of a bad idea the whole thing was. Yes. <laughs> Not going to argue with the bad idea part. Um. Right. <laughs> Uh, while I can't say that poor representation is a thing of the past, I can say that there are plenty of stories out today handled much better than what we have just discussed. If you're interested in hearing from black creators in mainstream comics today, it's easier than ever with writers like Vida Ayala, ta Coates, Christopher Priest, Regina Sawyer, Aaron Magruder, or any of the others you can find by talking to your local comic shop. Personally, I don't think a discussion of black creators would be complete without mentioning the late, great Dwayne McDuffie. And for anyone who feels underrepresented, make your presence known. There is a place for you. If you're creatively inclined, I would love to read your story. And with that, Delisa, is there anything that you would like to plug? Um, I guess, again, I'll just mention I am a certified nutrition consultant. So if anyone is looking to change some lifestyle and eating habits, feel free to look me up at Lanula Nutrition Consulting. So it's L-U-N-U-L-A Nutrition on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so much. I also I just want to point out that like uh, I've known you for a little bit of time now and uh I have definitely made some pretty bad nutritional uh, decisions around you. I've never felt like you have uh, uh, shamed me or judged me in any way. So if anyone's actually like, I, I definitely would trust Delisa. Yeah, I am a judgment-free zone. You know, obviously my goal in life is health over everything else because I've had my own issues. So I think it's important for people to just take control of like their own health so that we can you know, survive in this world that's, you know, trying to kill us um, <laughs> in various ways. But yes. You can find more information, including all of the sources for today's episode at comicallypedantic.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching at PedanticCast and at Derek L. Chase on both platforms. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at comicallypedantic.com. If you'd like to support this show, if you'd like to help us stay ad-free and possibly be mentioned on air, you can check out the Patreon link at the top of comicallypedantic.com. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them in text or audio recording to comicallypedantic at gmail.com. Please indicate if you'd like the name or question read on the air. We will be back next week with a more personal story involving an indie comic and some very graphic content. Listener discretion will be advised. But until then, you can find more exciting adventures at your local comic shop. 